This is The Guardian. Today, for years, the full horrors of what happened at Nazi concentration camps on British soil have been hidden. Will a new inquiry finally find some answers? Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Earlier this month, I got to interview a president. Good morning. Morning. How are you doing? Um, thanks so much for talking to us, William. It's a pleasure. William Tate is the president of Alderney a tiny British crown dependency island just off the coast of France. It is a jewel. I mean, we've lived here 27 years and every morning we give thanks for the privilege of being able to live in such an incredible location and an incredible community. There's about 2,000 of us. We live on a piece of granite in the middle of the English Channel, which is about three and a half miles by one and a half. And I think His job usually involves the kind of things you might expect for the president of a small island. Ribbon cutting, greeting VIPs when they visit from the mainland. And after our interview, he was going to open a new paddleboard centre. The paddleboard is, is for the youngsters. So I, I'm, I'm sort of all things to all men, you might say. Okay. But recently, he's been dealing with something much bigger. For decades... The island has been trying to find a way to deal with what happened there during one of the darkest chapters in its history. During World War II, Alderney, Guernsey and Jersey were the only part of the British Isles occupied by the Nazis. And the Nazis built slave labour camps on Alderney, where they worked hundreds, possibly thousands of people, to their deaths. Everybody is very conscious here of what happened. And as a community, you know, I I look out of my window in the morning and I see a German anti-tank wall between my house and the beach. And you can go anywhere around the island and you will see German fortifications. So everybody who lives here every day sees the history. So we very much see this as part of our history. But it's a history that the British government on the mainland has done all it can to try and forget. Until last month, when it was announced that for the first time, there would be an official inquiry into what happened on Alderney. I think this was long overdue. The events that took place between 1940 and 1945 are very much part of the DNA of the island and the DNA of the people who lived here. So people would welcome a resolution so that we would not have the constant debate ongoing about how many people actually died in Alderney. People here will feel if we can bring a sense of closure, then that will be 
in the interests of everybody. From The Guardian, I'm Nosheen Iqbal. Today in Focus, a Nazi atrocity on British soil and the decades-long search for answers that might finally be coming to an end. Madeleine Bunting, you're a former Guardian journalist and the author of a book about the Channel Islands under Nazi control, which is called Model Occupation. Can you tell me, first of all, how and when did the Channel Islands come under occupation by the Nazis? Well, the Nazis spread very, very quickly across France in 1940. Germany's wild attack becomes more savage every hour. Down swoop their bombers on undefended towns, down upon women and children. I mean, there's this terrifying moment in 1940 when the telephone lines are cut to Whitehall and the islands suddenly realised they were completely on their own and there was no chance of any help coming from the UK. And, you know, it's, it, it still sort of slightly sends shivers down my spine the Germans at that point were advancing rapidly across France. Paris, das heißt, Ziel ist erreicht. Paris fell, they got to the Normandy coast, and then they just rocked up in the islands. Why didn't the British defend it? At that point, if you, if you think what was going on in 1940 uh, as France fell, the British expeditionary force was being pulled out of northern France at Dunkirk. There was this massive desperate attempt to evacuate the British army off the beaches, you know, for which, of course, it's all very famous. And it it was that sort of um, existential moment for for the UK in which they realised they could not, they did not have the resources uh, to push the, the Nazis back. And the Channel Islands would have been extremely difficult to defend. These are small islands which are completely exposed to German air, airplanes. Um, there was this terrifying moment, I think, in 1940 when the islands thought they might become a battlefield. And really, there would have been very little left of the islands if that had happened. So what happened to the residents of Alderney? Well, in the, in the weeks up to the German invasion, all the islanders were faced with a decision about whether they abandoned all of their belongings, their homes, etc., and get on the boats to get to the mainland. Very sad to leave it. Glad to be going. Not not realising the danger that we were in even then, because, you see, the Germans by then were on the coast of France and were visible to... We could see the the, the German soldiers going down the towards Cherbourg. So they did a pretty good job of getting most people off Alderney. Um, Thousands left Guernsey and Jersey in chaotic scenes, overcrowded boats, but thousands were left behind, some not willingly. You know, they they were trying to get off the islands and there wasn't the space on the boats for them. What did the Nazis do once they had the island to themselves? Well, the island authorities thought, let's make the best of this. You know, we have no choice. The Germans have arrived. They're here in huge numbers. We can't resist. So we will just sit tight and try and protect and save as many people as possible. Many civilians had already been evacuated to Britain. For those who remained, business under German rule seemed to continue quite normally. The Germans, meanwhile, thought, 
you know, this is our great sort of experiment in how the Anglo-Saxon races have so much in common and are really, you know, we should be allies. At first, the troops were friendly towards the civilians, for they optimistically believed the invasion of Britain was only a few days away. So the German soldiers were instructed to behave impeccably, to treat the islanders with courtesy at all times, etc., etc. So the initial fear began to somewhat subside. There was this sort of uneasy kind of coexistence. All the privations of occupation were inflicted on the Channel Islands. Radios were forbidden, newspapers censored, meetings and gatherings of all kinds were banned. The power of the swastika was everywhere. But from 1942 onwards, the Germans began to bring in thousands of slave labourers. And they had um, rounded up these often teenage boys in parts of Central and Eastern Europe behind the battle lines. So as they swept into Russia, Poland, Ukraine, the young men that hadn't enlisted, 15 to 17, were left behind in the fields and they were rounded up onto railway trucks and brought across Europe to the Channel Islands to build the huge system of fortifications that the Germans decided to build on all the islands. Now, there were thousands of slave labourers on Jersey, Guernsey and Alderney. And the, the working conditions were horrendous and the food was inadequate and many were mistreated, beaten and appalling incidents of cruelty on all the islands. But by far the worst was Alderney. On Alderney, something far more sinister happened, which was that an SS camp was set up at Silt. And it became an SS camp because a contingent of French Jews, Spanish Republican political prisoners, some North Africans were brought to Alderney to form part of this slave labour. And the distinction between a slave labour camp uh, and a concentration camp is quite blurred, actually, because all of the these kinds of prisoners were expected to work and they were expected to work in appalling circumstances with terrible diet, living in dreadful working conditions. And the idea was that they were working, they were building these fortifications. Their clothing, I mean, the, they were wearing the striped clothing that we associate with, with SS, the sort of striped pyjamas that we associate with uh, the Holocaust and with the SS camps elsewhere. There was a terrible problem of lice. Uh, there were outbreaks of typhoid. And from the kind of survivors of the camps, there are all sorts of stories of brutality and violence. Hardly any food. Life was hard, poor. That is why out of a thousand... There's only, there was only 650 left. There are also gruesome stories about how bodies might have been dumped in the harbour and the crabs and the shellfish consumed the corpses. So it's a very lurid, painful story of a kind of brutality that even, even the post-war investigators, I think, you can feel their horror in the official documents. And... How was it that these details were able to be established or talked about? I mean, I know you've mentioned that you've met some survivors, but were there many others that were officially interviewed? 
Yes, so what happened is that... The people of the British Isles rejoice at the Prime Minister's victory proclamation that our dear Channel Islands were to be liberated at last. After 1945, when the Germans did surrender finally in the islands. As they march through the streets of St. Peter Port, our troops receive the concentrated welcome of a people who have suffered five years of misery in the only part of the United Kingdom ever to be overrun by Germany. There were still substantial numbers of slave labourers on the islands. Um, the SS camp had been closed down by that point, but there were still slave labourers on Alderney. And there was something like 20 uh, British people living on Alderney. And so they could be interviewed. So when the British arrived on the islands, they, they began the process of interviewing people. And they very quickly established that terrible atrocities had happened uh, and appointed a, an MI-19 officer called Theodore Panchev. And Panchev was charged with investigating war crimes. And he compiled copious notes over the summer of 1945. And he gathered a lot of material. And he was quite clear that there were a number of people that needed to be prosecuted for war crimes. And he listed the German officers responsible. So, you know, all of that I discovered when I got to Moscow in 1993, when the, after the fall of the Berlin Wall and, and for the first time they opened the archives and I found that report, which I'd never been able to find in the British archives. So the only complete report was in the Moscow archives. Right. And it's shocking reading. You know, it was quite clear the nature of the war crimes that had been committed. Madeline, as part of the research for your book, in 1992, you tracked down one of the commanders who was in charge on Alderney and he was now living in Hamburg. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I mean, it was it was an extraordinary moment. You know, I'd been digging into archives in uh, London, the Channel Islands. Um, I'd been travelling across Europe, France, Belgium, Germany, Russia, Ukraine, Poland, trying to find all sorts of people that had been on the islands during the occupation and obviously spending a lot of time in the islands interviewing people. And as I pieced the story together, I got curious as to you know what had happened to the German officers who had been responsible for the atrocities on Alderney and why it was that they had not been prosecuted. And so I began digging through everything I could find relating to them. Where could they possibly be? And I remember I got hold of a, somebody passed me on to a journalist at Der Spiegel. And you know how colleagues can be very busy and they can say, oh, sorry, I haven't got time to help. But this guy did. He did have time to help. And I phoned him up and I said, the last known place for Kurt Klebeck was Hamburg. You know, how can I find this guy in Hamburg? And he said, there's a Kurt Klebeck. Shall we go and visit him? And I flew out to Hamburg the next day. And we went to um, this residential suburban area of Hamburg. And we knocked on the door and his wife opened the door and we said, can we speak to Kurt Klebeck? And she said, who are you? And and he was talking in German, so it wouldn't alert her, my English accent. And he, he said, we just want to talk about um, his, his time in the war. And she shut the door. And through the door, he said, I can't talk to you. I have nothing to hide. I'm not talking to you. And um, we tried to persuade him to come out, and he wouldn't. So we had to give up, and we're walking away. And we get to the um, train station, overlooking some playing fields back to the apartment block where he lived. And he'd come out on his balcony to watch us leaving the flat, at which point the photographer was able to get a photo of him on the balcony looking at us. 
And uh, he was in his early 80s and at uh, that time and in good enough health to stand trial. He'd never stood trial for his crimes on Alderney. He had stood trial for terrible crimes he was involved in in the end of the war in 1945 in Germany. But there was nobody had ever charged him with the crimes on Alderney, which was the biggest mass murder ever on British soil. And nobody's ever been prosecuted. Martin Bright, you're a former Observer journalist and the editor-at-large for Index on Censorship, and you've been following this story for a number of years. We've just heard from Madeleine, who told us about the Nazi occupation of Alderney. What do we know and what do we still not know about how many people were killed and who they were on this island? I think this is the, the central question for us now, is how many people really suffered on Alderney. The official figure is around 400. It seems from the work of some recent archaeology that those numbers could be as high as a thousand. But there are some uh, researchers who believe that those figures could be much higher, could be in the thousands. Well, after World War II, this story was left largely in the shadows until a reporter called Solomon Steckel published an investigation in The Observer in 1981. What did he find? The amazing thing about Solomon Steckel is that he's an amateur sleuth. So he was an archaeologist and a reporter. Uh, He was South African, Jewish, Israeli, and he went to Yad Vashem, the main Holocaust archive in in Israel and found documentary evidence that, in his view, there had been a cover-up of what had happened in Alderney. So he came to the UK and challenged the British government to come clean about what had really happened. In fact, his his first demand was a meeting with Margaret Thatcher, the Prime Minister at the time. Wow. So this um, rather eccentric figure turned up at the Observer and emptied his documents on the table a young reporter at the time called Robin Lustig was assigned to help him to organise what he'd found and demand some sort of inquiry from the British government. And he did, in fact, manage to get meetings with top civil servants to try and get them to address his claims. But he didn't quite manage to get that inquiry. And in the meantime, the British government has been failing to hold to account prominent Nazis over these atrocities. Why is that? When Steckel uh, first started to campaign to get these atrocities properly investigated, there was still resistance in official circles, particularly over the issue of Alderney, because it was so sensitive that we had um, we had camps on this island, and I think there was still some residual resistance because of the narrative of British exceptionalism, I guess you could call it, that developed after the war, the idea that we had stood alone against the Nazis, that we were a, we were a nation that uh, had been on the side of good against evil, and that this idea that part of the British Isles was occupied didn't really fit with that narrative. And so I think what happened was that immediately after the war, there was a genuine 
belief that having war crimes trials on British soil was going to be immensely embarrassing to Britain. This would have been completely unacceptable in a time of austerity, people recovering from war, wanting to develop an idea of uh, British heroism. So Britain did miss opportunities to hold people to account then? Oh, on more than one occasion, we held the three main war criminals responsible for the camps on Alderney in British custody, and they were released. There was a decision to release them around 1948. They'd been held for three years after the war. They'd been interrogated. Then they'd been debriefed, and we allowed them to go back to Germany, where they, all three of them, died in old age. So it is quite staggering. There were a lot of Nazis. There were a lot of people who had committed terrible crimes. The vast majority of them were not prosecuted. So you had to, at the time, make some kind of priority judgment. The question here is, why weren't the people who'd been responsible for running concentration camps on Alderney judged a priority? And even more than that, why did the British government say that the main individual, Karl Hoffman, who was in charge of Alderney, had been handed over to the Soviets and executed in Kiev, when in fact we knew that that wasn't the case. We knew that we had him in our custody and we knew that he, we let him go and we knew that he was alive and living in Germany. So That's bonkers. If you go back to the question of Solomon Steckel, this eccentric figure who turns up in, in Britain demanding answers, again, looking at the correspondence, clearly the civil servant saw him as a bit of an annoyance, mm, a strange character that had suddenly turned up and uh, was was asking all these questions. They initially, the officials, said he can't be right. It cannot be the case that we let a prominent Nazi war criminal go. That's not very British, is it? Latterly, a year after he made his claims, they were forced to admit that he was right. The tragedy is that by then he was dead. So he never found out that the British government had had to ad admit that he'd been right all along. So would you say there has been an attempt at an official cover-up? I think it's very difficult not to come to the conclusion that the British government were involved in a cover-up here. Coming up. The government has finally launched a fact-finding mission to try and come to a definitive answer on how many people were killed on Alderney. But not everybody thinks it's a good idea. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. 
here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Lord Eric Pickles, you've announced a government inquiry into what happened on Alderney during the Second World War. Why now? And why hasn't it happened before? Uh, I mean, it may sound strange to you, but the number who died there is a matter of hot debate inside Alderney. And it seemed to me the sensible thing is to kind of just sit down and say, if you've got some facts, if you've got some data, bring it to us. Let's have a look. Let's try to arrive at a, at a reasonable figure. Because while Holocaust uh, deniers and distortants can lie through their teeth as many times as they like, those that want to remember the Holocaust on the basis of truth can't afford to make a mistake. But there has been some pushback from local residents, and they are worried that the island could become, as one of them put it, a macabre theme park for Holocaust tourists. Do you sympathise with those concerns? Uh, not really. I think that's, uh, that's very unlikely. I think um, the dead deserve uh, to be shown some respect. Alden is a stunningly beautiful holiday destination. Uh, but sometimes really dreadful things happen in beautiful places. And coming to terms with, um, you know, with the reality is, is not a bad thing. And the way in which it's remembered, I think, reflects very well in the local population. Well, before this inquiry, there was often a suggestion that getting to the truth of what happened on Alderney was difficult because there'd been a government cover-up. What do you make of that? Well, I mean, there's one question that probably just need answering that, that, that's kind of intrigued me is, why weren't there any uh, war crime uh, trials taking place in any of the Channel Islands? Now, Part of um, this inquiry has already uncovered documents showing that preparations were being made. And I hope we'll be able to get um, uh, an answer why not. One of the reasons why I was pretty uh, determined to make sure this inquiry was absolutely transparent is the evidence will be transparent. The decisions on the evidence, or rather the views on the evidence, will be transparent. So there can be no suggestion of any kind of cover-up. 
we'll just have to see where the dice roll. And what do you hope for the inquiry to find? Well, we can come at a, a reasonable range of numbers on the basis of, of a degree of um, some certainty. We're not going to come down to an exact number. But the, the, the very strange thing about this process is a lot of the information is hidden in plain sight. Now, we've already been uh, offered uh, a list of people from Spain who were there. We've already been offered a list of um, uh, of shipments of people uh, from a German source. And it's just a question of, of, of kind of bringing these all these things together. And finally, if, as some people say, that there has been a government cover-up here and you find evidence that makes that clear, will you be publishing it and will there be any kind of formal recognition? Well, the short answer to that is yes. The long answer to that is also yes. Of course we'll publish it. We hope that we will be able to formally start our deliberations as opposed to the gathering information at the end of November and hopefully bring something out by March. Now, frankly, if we find something very intriguing halfway through October, then we might extend the deadline. But we're hoping this is not going to go on for years. Um, But, you know, I'm not ruling anything out. I don't think we should be frightened of the truth. Martin, what do you hope or expect that the inquiry might find? My feeling is that a genuine inquiry into the numbers who died on Alderney is something that we've been waiting 80 years to see. It has to be entirely transparent. It has to be seen to be run by independent experts. What really mustn't happen is for this to be yet another example of the British government appearing to be looking into what happened in the Channel Islands and that this itself to become part of another cover-up. Do you know how the inquiry is being carried out? I mean, how much do we know about who else is involved? The inquiry is quite limited in its scope. Strictly speaking, it's a review by academics of all the evidence of how many people died on Alderney. So it's quite specific. The experts are people who have pronounced on this before. So these are people who have largely come down on the more conservative side of the numbers who died on on Alderney. But they are all uh, prominent and respected academics. Some of them have an archaeological background. Some of them have a more um, historical background. But the idea is to look into what is out there evidentially and come back and report specifically on the numbers. But it is very important that this isn't seen as the end of the process. Mm. That even if it's the case that this review looks specifically into the numbers, it's clear now that the question of the war criminals, the question of what happened on the other islands, is something that's going to be difficult to ignore. And so, Martin, who will this inquiry offer closure to? What will it mean for the residents of Alderney? 
it hopefully will offer some kind of closure to the people of Alderney. I do hope that trust can be built in the Channel Islands to cooperate with the inquiry and recognise that this is something that, that needs to be done and that memorial of the people who died there is part of Channel Islands' identity. William, whatever the report finds, as you told us earlier, the people of Alderney remember the victims of the Nazi concentration camps every year and will continue to do that. Can you tell me what those memorials look like? The 1960s, a local family here built an incredible monument called the Hammond Memorial. They'd been over and serving during the war and they came back and, and they wanted to have something here. So, so what their intention was to have somewhere which was a focus where people could go and show their respects. So we have plaques around the back of the monument which are recognised all the different nationalities that were here. We have an annual all-faith meeting at the Hammond Memorial. Those of us of a certain age will never forget those images of what was found in that place and those images are indelibly imprinted on all our memories in which everybody from the community is invited to attend and it's an incredibly poignant moment and made more so this year because we had a representative of a jewish organization in the uk who came and read the Kaddish, the prayer for the dead, in Yiddish. And you know, even now, it's a very touching moment. That was William Tate, President of the States of Ordney. Our thanks to him and to Martin Bryant, whose reporting on this story you can read at theguardian.com, to Madeleine Bunting, whose book is called The Model Occupation, and to Lord Eric Pickles. For more on the government inquiry into what happened on Alderney, you can visit occupiedalderney.org. And that's it for today. I'm Nasheen, and this episode was produced by Alex Atak. Sound design was by Solomon King. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.